Welcome to Crux Investor, everyone. Today we're going to be speaking with the mercenary geologist, Mickey Fulp. He's, uh, he's an author, analyst, geologist, and uh, would-be TV star. Hello, Mickey. How are you? I'm doing well, Matthew. How are you? Very well. Now, we've seen a lot of you over the past few months. You're, uh, you're prolific, I think the word is, in terms of your commentary about, uh, in, in the market. Um, now, you, you write something which I, I quite, quite like. It's the Monday morning musings of Mickey, the mercenary geologist. It it's, rolls off the tongue. <laughs> well, thank you. But it's a very well-read newsletter. And I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend people um, have a look at that. Uh, I think they can get to that on your website, themercenarygeologist.com. And the best thing about it is it's free. So uh, uh, I run a sponsor model on my website. Um, so it's free to everybody. And the benefit is that if you subscribe as a free email subscriber to the newsletter, you get my stock picks and all my work uh, much sooner than than they are released to the general public. I dare say straight talking analysis as well. So um, like I say, I encourage people to look at that. In terms of your audience, um, why do people come to you? What, what do they get from you that they don't get from, from other places in the market? Because we, we've seen our investors, retail, high net worth, family offices, struggle to get unbiased, reliable, and straight talking uh, information with which to make investment decisions. So what are they getting from you? Well, you get 30 years of geological experience. So uh, with the exception of one other newsletter, I'm the only geologist with practical field experience to evaluate projects. Uh, But I'm not unbiased because I've got my money in everything that I give to my subscribers. I've got skin in the game and Personally, I think that's important that you know that my money is in there, right in there with yours. So I, uh, it, it's an informed view. It's an honest view. Uh, you know, I don't like very much. I reject about 98% of all companies. Uh, and I'm mainly involved with the Toronto Venture Exchange or the Toronto Stock Exchange. Uh, uh, but Uh, about 2% of the companies that I look at would even deserve a second look. So very particular. Uh, We know what we want and we go and we try to find that on a recurring basis. Right. Now you talked about wanting to educate people. So why don't we start by sort of understanding what what your investment strategies are? Uh, So I will not use the word investment here because I think this is speculation. These are pure speculations because they do, do not generate cash. At the exploration end, or would you also say at the production end? That's a whole nother ball game there. I am very much focused on the exploration end. Uh, uh, I gave a talk at PDAC uh, about three weeks ago, and the, the title of it was Why I Don't Own Mining Companies. And I go through this thought experiment, and I basically show that mining companies are not a good investment. Investments defined as something that uh, uh, gives you a recurring profit, and these companies do not. So, so the, the base is exploration, 
Uh, the idea is you evaluate companies by uh, tight shares. You want a tight share structure. You want management with skin in the game. You want that management be technically oriented, either geologists or engineers, and have had previous success, not a bunch of failures. You're looking mainly for a flagship project with the geological characteristics that will allow it uh, potentially to be a, a, a mineral deposit or a mine. You want that in a safe geopolitical jurisdiction. And finally, especially in a bear market like we have now, you want that company to have cash on hand or the ability to raise cash without severe dilution. Right. So, I mean, that, that says to me you're a fundamentals guy. Absolutely. You're not a day trader. I, I've never shorted a stock or any financial instrument in my life. I always find something to go long on. But you, you said something a second ago, which it might be unnerving to people thinking investing in mining, which is you don't make money from mining companies. What did you mean by that? Well, let's take the gold miners, the major gold miners example. And so over the course of since the beginning of the bull market for gold in 2003, uh, so that's 16 years now, almost 16 years. Those companies historically have not rewarded their shares, shareholders either with uh, uh, increase in share price or with dividends. And the reason is they don't generate enough capital to meet their obligations. So uh, we developed something we call the adequacy ratio, which basically is cash revenues coming in from sales of gold versus revenues going out for a variety of things. Uh, and if the ratio is greater than one, that's a successful company. And if it's not, if it's less than one, it isn't. So over the course, uh, for instance, uh, Barrick's been uh, uh, successful two or three years out of the 15. Newmont, about the same. Uh, Gold Corp, about the same. So um, those models have failed. They have not rewarded shareholders. In fact, we found that they give dividends, historically have issued dividends by taking on more debt or issuing equity. So that's not a sustainable business model. And therefore, I choose not to, quote, invest in mining companies. I would rather speculate in exploration companies because if you do your uh, proper due diligence, you can, it's gambling, but you can skew the odds in your favor. And that's the idea. And as you alluded to previously, we employ a contrarian philosophy. We try to get in early before the general market realizes. So looking for stocks that are, are unknown, unwanted, unloved, and undervalued at any particular time. Aren't they all? Aren't they all? <laughs> Um, Nick, just, so I just want to, again, make sure I understand the adequacy ratio component. Now, obviously, you, the, the examples you gave there were all of producing companies throwing off cash, but needing to replenish their resources and therefore right. taking on more debt, raising more capital, and then forgetting to reward the, well, not necessarily forgetting to reward the shareholders, but burdening the company with more debt to be able to pay dividends out. Right. So it, yeah, yeah, I can see why that doesn't work. Um, you're obviously focused on the exploration side of things, non-cash 
throwing, you, you can't get dividends if they're not throwing off cash, but you can create value, you hope, if you can pick the right companies. At the right time. At the right time, at the right price. Yeah. So right. let's talk a bit about that. Um, big question, why should people start investing in the mining space? Yeah, so let's once again separate the ex exploration and the mining space. So we are focused on the exploration end. Those companies never generate cash flow. But if you look at, and I'm going to use the example of Toronto Venture Exchange, because that's the playground that we are involved in. Uh, if you look at a 52-week running high-low of any stock listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange, the great majority, well over 95% of those companies, will have a 52-week running low uh, and high of at least a double. So it is incumbent on us to find those stocks when they are trading near their low and play that within a year. And the goal is to get a double within the year. You sell half your position and you take that cash, you've maintained your cash position, your uh, base uh, uh, cash, and you go and you find another one and do it again. Meanwhile, you play the upside on that stock that you've just taken all your money off the table and have a zero cost basis. It's a trading methodology we call the power of two because you are doubling your equity position uh, at any given time. So if you do it twice, you have two times you've preserved your gas. Uh, you do it three times, four times. So you keep increasing your ability to make money while maintaining your base cash position. So, but is this theory or is this, this has been put into practice? No, this isn't theory at all. I've been doing this since 1992 successfully. Uh, it's, I, I will admit it's easier in a bull market than it is in a bear market because high tide floats all boats. Yeah. But, uh, but I made, I made money last year. I made money the year before uh, by picking the right stocks at the right time and employing this trading methodology, you will be successful. Now, we're not successful on all of the stocks, but, but we commonly get two baggers, three baggers, even five baggers uh, out of this philosophy. But what, what point are you coming in? What, what, what stage of the coming? It's exploration again, but that's a big space, huh? You can be yeah, in. so it depends on the company, but we try to get early stage opportunities. And that does not mean the project is particularly early stage, but the company is. So once again, as contrarians, we want to find the unknown, unwanted, unloved, and undervalued. And there's lots of stocks that meet that criteria all the time, but the the key to it is pick them when they're down and or when they before the general market realizes that uh, this is a good stock. And we've done that quite successfully. Another thing in this, the exploration stage of investment is that, you know, a lot of people with the same mentality and trading out of a stock at the same time, there's not the liquidity or volume there for the company to um, not be greatly affected 
if you've got a lot of people doing the same thing at the same time. You know, it, it can it can paralyze a company. It can actually send a company into recession. It it's it's difficult yeah. with small trading volumes to actually do what you're talking about. So what type of companies are you looking for in terms of what, what market cap are they? What stage of exploration are they? Well, I'll give you two examples right now. Uh, our two most successful picks over the past year. One of them is uh, is listed on the New York American Exchange. It currently has a market cap of about $280 million U.S., we picked that stock at 65 cents uh, a year ago. Well, it'll be two years in May. Uh, it currently trades at a, a over $2.50 US. So there's a four bagger right there. Uh, and it is an advanced explorer slash developer uh, in copper space. Another example would be a small royalty company focused in Nevada that we picked uh, 13 months ago at nine cents, Canadian market cap of about uh, uh, seven million bucks. Two weeks ago, it hit an, a multi-year high of 20 cents. So there's your double. You, when that stock hit 19 cents, uh, my subscribers, if they follow the uh, trading methodology, and it's up to them to do that, would have sold half their position, taken all their money off the table. That still is a 18, 19 cent stock, and you play it for the upside. You're not going to tell us all about the ones that didn't go well. Uh, I can tell you one. Sure, I'll tell you one that. Please do, and but please tell me why. I said what went wrong that shouldn't. Yeah, be absolutely. So uh, I've never been uh, enamored with zinc space. I've avoided zinc companies about two and a half years ago, uh, in the fall of 2016. I was presented with a zinc opportunity in uh, Ireland. Uh, a junior, a startup junior, people I'd worked with before, had bought out a major mining company there on an exploration program. Uh, I thought that zinc was going to go on a great run. Price-wise, we were absolutely right. But that did not transfer to junior equity space. So uh, uh, we picked the stock. Uh, it did not perform. And it's still hasn't performed to the to the uh, uh management's credit they've realized that zinc is the bloom came off that rose very quickly even though zinc price today is about a buck 30 uh which is not that far off the uh the all-time high uh but that company now as has uh found a reconnaissance exploration play in copper space in South America. So there's still hope for that company, but they've made a pivot where they've decided, well, we're gonna keep the zinc play, keep working on it, but we need something in a, com a different commodity and they pick copper for good reason. So, I mean, just, that's a great example. I think I think I did something similar, but I moved my money out into uh, lithium. So just help investors understand, because I'm, I'm trying to help people understand that the why there's a need for mining because i think it's something which was very popular 
Um, people have been distracted with, you know, even even mining investors have been distracted in the last couple of years. But, you know, the y- younger investors thinking of coming into this are looking at technology, they're looking at healthcare, they're looking at other things other than mining. There's, there's a reputational component to this, which is, you know, the sheen has come off. So what, why do you think is still a relevant investment class? Well, number one, everything we we use in this society is either grown or mine. So, you know, I'm looking at your background there and I can see uh, just about everything that's uh, from your wallboard to your glasses. Uh, those components come from mining. So mining is essential for modern day society. It was essential for caveman society when they first started using tools. Uh, uh, those elements, copper, iron, uh, we're all extracted from the earth. So mining is essential. Uh, the, if you look at what's happened in the markets over the last five years, the only space that has not really performed uh, is mining space. So miners are still undervalued. Exploration companies are sorely undervalued from their peaks in 2011-2012. So for a contrarian such as I am, it looks like a good time to get involved in the exploration and mining space. Look at the cryptocurrency bubble. Uh, Look at the marijuana bubble. Uh, They're you know, I don't know any cryptocurrencies that have performed well over the last year and a half. Uh, some portions, at least in North America, of marijuana space have gone exponential. But when things go exponential, they go parabolic. They come back down on the other side. Look at, uh, for example, lithium price uh, recently. So what you want to do is you want to find those sectors that have the uh, potential to increase in valuation and get in early before they they uh, approach that exponential rise sort of space. That's when you need to be selling. So you're, you're a contrarian and and a fundamentalist, but also a, a sensible investor. You're not you're not looking for stratospheric returns because you. Well, think we're always can... looking for those ten baggers, but bear in mind we've already taken our money off the table when they double. No, my po- uh, my know. point is you need you need to know when to get out. Yeah, you can't be greedy. You know, markets are um, driven by three emotions. And our goal, my goal, uh, is to trade, always trade without emotion. So markets are driven by fear, panic, and greed. So let's take panic, uh, let's take greed first. When markets go up, People get greedy. They fear that they're going to miss the next big thing. So uh, so they hold on too long. They don't employ a philosophy. Hey, I've take, I got my profits. Let's take our money off the table. Uh, they fear uh, that they're going to miss out on the next big thing. When that stock or financial instrument starts going down the other side in the parabolic fall, they panic. And they sell at the bottom. So, so there, those three emotions, greed and panic, both have a common and commonality, and that's fear. So, you need to learn to control your emotions and do not trade w- with emotion. If you start to fear, 
uh, either on the panic side or the greed side, you need to step back, sleep on it overnight, and then come back tomorrow with a, a non-emotional, fundamental decision on is it time to exit this stock or this financial instrument or this commodity, uh, or is it time to put more money in, or is it time to sit on the sidelines and wait? And there's strong fundamental reasons to do one of all three of those. I think we're starting to learn a little bit more about your, your philosophy, which, which, is, which is fascinating. Um, and I say you've been, you, you've been in it a while, so you, you've seen all sorts. You doubled your money last year and the year before. What's your secret? How would you sum that up? I got 30 years of a, as a field geologist and another 10 as an analyst and talking head. Uh, so I understand commodity markets. I understand the way the junior business behaves. Uh, we don't always make uh, the right decisions. You know, I own about 30 junior stocks right now, but I only cover two companies. So what we do in the newsletter is try to pick the no-brainers. I have lots of stocks in my portfolio right now that are underwater. Uh, I do not trade stocks that I've lost money on until it's time to take uh, losses during tax loss season. So uh, I haven't paid capital gains in the U.S. for something on the order of seven or eight years uh, because I've had losses and I can wipe out my profits by taking tax losses. Mm -hmm. The other thing we do quite commonly, we did this in late November and December, is when people are selling off good companies during tax loss season, we go in and we buy them. And we buy them in mid-December and we flip them the first week of January and we make 25 to 40% on our money. We did that quite successfully again this year. Uh, those sorts of trades, uh, I talk about the philosophy of it, but I do not give specific examples of companies. So uh, I can tell you uh, a couple of companies that we, we did that successfully, but I don't give people advice uh, in the market. I tell them what I'm doing. Uh, and the, the idea of uh, tax loss buying has been very successful trading philosophy for us, for us also. And that has nothing to do with the stock picks and the power to trading philosophy. Just another example, ways to make money in this business. Right. So you, you got, sounds like you got, you got a seasonal uh, philosophy Absolutely. as well there. Fantastic. Very well, like, much oriented on the seasonality of commodities, the seasonality of the Toronto Venture Exchange, the seasonality of obtuse forward-looking economic parameters like the Baltic Dry Index. We on the website, if, you, if people care to go and visit it, we have seasonality uh, uh, newsletters on all that stuff uh, over the last three or four years. So now I want to move into the, the, the meat of this. Okay. Okay. You know a lot about gold, copper, and uranium. I've, I've heard you talking about it recently. If you can sort of set up where the gold market is today and why you think it's something that people should be looking at. Well, gold right now is I'm looking at 1295 Took a pretty big hit over the last day or overnight. 
Why is that? Because U.S. dollar gained about 50 basis points over the last 24 hours. Uh, so uh, the idea with gold is it's a safe haven. We saw that uh, last week when the Fed came out and said, we're, we're not going to raise interest rates and U.S. interest rates went down. Uh, the yield curve inverted and so gold goes up. Uh, so there is a bullish case for gold uh, with a slowing global economy, uh, hints of recession coming, say, in the next year to 18 months. So that's going to be very positive for gold. Uh, so I am one of these folks who owns physical gold in my physical possession. I always got 10 to 20% of my net wealth in physical gold. I continue to accumulate gold. So that's the bullish case for gold. Bullish case for copper, supply demand fundamentals are compelling right now. Uh, it depends on Trump and Xi solving the trade tariff dispute. But it's my premise that copper will soar based on supply demand fundamentals. Once those trade uh, issues are resolved, I'm convinced that the Chinese need the Americans more than the Americans need the Chinese. Just look at the relative performances of the, st of the stock markets, the Shanghai ex exchange down 25% uh, last year. The U.S. markets uh, uh, continuing to roll right along. Um, so, uh, you know, copper is the basis for our society. For a, you can't transmit electricity without copper. There are 85 million more people on the planet every year. 25% still go to bed <clears throat> when it gets dark and they get up when it's light. They can't turn on the light switch. So, uh, but that's coming, and most of those people where it's coming now is in Eastern Asia. So 3.4% annualized growth in copper demand every year since 1900 annualized. But isn't that true of, like, most battery metals? Battery metals are kind of the flavor of the year. Look at the relative prices of of lithium, which spiked about a year ago and has lost a significant amount of, of its uh, uh, price per ton. Look at cobalt, which spiked about uh, less than a year ago, and it's trading for less than half of that right now. Look at vanadium, the same thing. Vanadium went from uh, 35 bucks a pound, and now it's somewhere about 15 bucks. So those are very small markets, and though they would be what are called the specialty metals. Now they're called battery metals, but it's the same thing. Those markets are controlled either by an oligopoly and lithium's uh, space, three of the largest chemical companies in the world, plus the Chinese control that space. Uh, vanadium markets, there is, there's, there are only three standalone vanadium mines in the world. Most of the vanadium comes from steel smelters or uranium producers. So uh, that's a space fraught with difficulty with an annual market of only 80,000 tons. 
compare that to copper with 24 million tons in a market. Uh, so those specialty metals, the so-called battery metals, are a portion of the junior space that I choose not to tread. Have you ever tread? Did Were you there when there was a bubble? I was there at the beginning of the rarest bubble. I was the first uh, uh, newsletter and writer uh, analyst to publicly cover that space. Mm. We picked the four companies that junior companies on the Toronto Venture Exchange that ended up becoming New York Stock Exchange listed. They all went from pennies to multi-dollar valuations. We sold, uh, admittedly not uh, fast enough for all of them, but uh, uh, we made lots of money in rare space. I would not touch that space now. And if, if I may just talk about the types of gold companies that you look at. I mean, I, I guess people can look at your website and your newsletter and your picks, et cetera, but just in broad terms, how, do you, how would you describe the types of gold companies that you think are going to be successful this year? Where are you going to make money? So over the last couple of years, I've been a, become a significant shareholder in through three, four, five uh, juniors operating in the western U.S., generally in Nevada, Idaho. Uh, uh, two of those examples uh, bought past producing mines from majors that have been shut down uh, in 1999-2000 based on exploration potential on resources in the ground. Uh, uh, Both those companies have done quite well. Uh, The other portion, uh, I, uh, I own a prospect generator in Nevada that's got the world's best exploration team something on the order of 30 million ounces of discoveries and production in Nevada. Uh, uh, And I also own uh, the aforementioned company that I currently cover, Stardow's Prospect Generator. Now it's a small uh, junior royalty prospect generator hybrid, uh, generally focused in Nevada. And what did they all have in common? What attracted you to them? As soon as Trump was elected president, I said, all the geopolitical risk is now removed from the Western U.S. I want to be involved in gold space uh, in the Western USA because uh, permitting is going to be uh, expedited. Uh, development's going to be expedited. Mineral withdrawals are going to come off, which they have. Uh, so the one of the benefits uh, to our space uh, was Trump getting elected. So we, uh, federal bureaucrats in the U.S. became can-do folks versus can't-do, which we were faced with eight years of the Obama administration, anti-development Obama administration, pro-development U.S. Uh, or Trump administration. Right. Okay, and so the, the so just say the the commonality when you were looking at first investing in those companies was was what the the, the management team or the location or all what? all of the above, but really I said I want to uh, the the impetus for this was I want to own explorers, uh, prospect generators, royalty companies 
in the in gold space in the western u.s that's a commonality they all have good management they all have well-managed share structures they all have the ability to raise money all the other stuff I, I, you know I probably looked at uh, at the time I, I ended up picking four or five of these companies but I looked at probably 30 <laughs> obviously you know, management asset promotability all of that kind of good stuff you you looked at this and said my theme here is a geopolitical one I think that Trump coming in will be positive for this region. I'm going after this region. That's what that Matthew. That's what changed. Yeah, that's what that's changed what for me in the space was a geopolitical factor. Exactly right. That's really interesting. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. And I guess ten years ago it would have been a different theme, and in ten years time it'll be another theme. But you're looking for those themes. Uh, which will work in your favor. Right, and so you want to wake up at four in the morning and say, what's changed, what's different? Uh, Where's the opportunity that I can get in early before most people realize what's going on in this space? And I guess that comes back to your point of it. You're a a long-only guy. You're looking for a change over time where you you can get in early, see that see that uplift yeah you're just gaming the market you know it, it here's an analogy i com- commonly use this is gambling what we do uh we are speculating uh if you go to the casino if you're a gambler and you go to the casino and you play roulette you're gonna lose unless you walk away from the wheel as soon as you hit once or twice, you're going to lose. It's a game that does not return to uh, speculators, to gamblers. But if you're a good card player and you go to the casino and you play blackjack or you play poker and you're good at it, you skew the odds in your favor because it's not strictly a game of chance. So that's kind of the way we tend to to look at what we do in this business. Great, and that's what we're trying to help people understand here. This is not a betting game. This is a game of intelligence, and you can you know, increase your odds by being smart, or smarter than, than, you, than you are today. And, and it, but realize it is gambling. You should never put money into this business that you cannot afford to lose. Well, this so. is your discretionary income. This is, is, this isn't your nest egg you're playing with in this space. It's the froth because you made so much money in the major markets over the last couple of years. You focus, You say copper is really important to you. Uh, again, can you just describe to us again, when you're looking for copper plays, what, what's the things, the themes or the, the aspects of, of copper companies that you're looking for? Yeah. Uh, in copper space, there's another saying that geologists use, and it's every good geologist knows that grade is king. So you want high grade, you want uh, large deposits, you want those to be in safe geopolitical jurisdictions. So right now I own one primary copper company. It's uh, focused on two high grade giant copper deposits in the 
great state of Alaska and the good old U.S. of A. It's got a major mining company uh, funding all its exploration. It's on the verge of development. Uh, that decision will be made next January, and we expect it to be positive. And once again, that company's gone from sixty-five, sixty-six cents to over two dollars and fifty cents. And what was it that you liked originally? What was what's the one thing? I was first on the ground there in twenty thirteen. I did not cover it until four years later in twenty seventeen, because I was waiting. I was waiting for something to change. I liked it because it is two deposits that are the highest grade giant deposits undeveloped in safe geopolitical jurisdiction in the world. At the time, uh, when I first looked at it, uh, I did not consider it to be a particularly safe geopolitical jurisdiction for future development. As soon as Trump got elected, I, I went back to the company, I said, hey, you know, is it time? And a couple of months later, they said, yes, it's time. And so so we made the deal and, uh, and I covered the company. Now, bear in mind, I've known the management of this company, the, the CEO of this company I've known since 1983. He's my age, uh, plus or minus a couple of years. And we started in this business together <clears throat> uh, you know, I first met him at a, at a mining convention in Spokane, Washington in 1982, 1983. So we go back a long ways. Uh, and so there's a trust, a com- uh, 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 an, air, uh, an aura of comfort. Uh, we're comfortable with each other. We know each other. Uh, so that helps too, you know. Every company I I own, I know the management. I get to know the management before I buy the company. So let's talk about the third one, uranium. You, you kind of touched on it there. It's a difficult space at the moment. Obviously, it is a difficult space. Um, the price, the spot price right now, just went below twenty five bucks yesterday. It, it had held at twenty nine. There are fundamental reasons uh, for that price drop. Uh, We think that the price will rise when the Section 232 decision is made in the U.S. here in about three weeks. That will be a jolt to uranium space. That will be a jolt to the uranium price or uranium companies in the U.S.? Both. I think there's going to be a a jump in the spot price when this decision comes. Uh, uh, But it is most beneficial to advanced explorers slash developers, let's just say developers and producers in in situ recovery space in the U.S. So uh, we are positioned, you know, I've been positioned in uranium space for quite some time for a commodity that is coming. As contrarians at times, you have to have patience. At some point, uh, uh, uranium will uh, come back. I can't tell you when that is going to be. The Section 232 decision will be uh, very positive for space, the space. But is that, is that the key driver? Because I mean, it's, that's, no, that's just, that's just yeah, a question yeah. of where the uranium comes from and who gets to splat the U.S. government. Not a lot of people producing at the moment because it costs too much 
to produce yeah, versus the, the spot. Yeah. It's, a, it's like 45, 50 bucks to produce. It's, uh, spot's about 20, 20 bucks. So surely this is driven by the size of the fleets and growing fleets around the world of nuclear power. That's got to be the key driver. Uh, no, you're, you're right. Very strong fundamentals uh, for increasing demand with 60 plus or minus 60 reactors in construction right now. Most of those in China and India, but there's uh, uh, build-outs in the U.S. right now uh, with the, the transition to a so-called green economy. Uh, there's only, uh, if you're going to get rid of coal and oil and natural gas to produce electricity, there's only one option for baseload electricity, and that's nuclear. I'm just trying to understand the importance of the Section 232, because I think a lot of shareholders are holding out that this is going to pop the market. And I'm, and I'm trying to understand why it would pop the market. I, I think I can understand why it would be good for American uranium. Absolutely. No, your points are very well taken there. Right. Okay. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see yeah. what happens in the next two, three weeks, I guess. Um, but fundamentally, you know, if, if, the, if the nuclear fleets grow, uranium companies come, come back in. I think one, one uh, CEO of a uranium company said to me, uranium is everywhere. It's a question of, can you mine it economically? Well, um, and no one's mining it economically. Even the Kazakhs at twenty-four bucks a pound or twenty-five bucks a pound. There's a reason that Cameco, the world's largest uranium company, uh, uh, shut down the world's largest uranium mine last year, MacArthur River, which had uh, uh, an all-in cost uh, outside of su sustaining capital of about 25 bucks a pound. They were underwater. And so what Cameco is doing right now or, or did last year and will do this year is buy spot uranium and sell it into their contracts, which their long-term contracts are higher prices uh, because it's cheaper than it is produced. The reason my sources who include uranium traders uh, in the U.S. Uh, have indicated that Cameco has not bought a pound of uranium in 2019. They need 11 to 12 million pounds to fulfill their contracts this year. So at some point, uh, they will start buying. And the thought right now is that's why the uranium prices has taken a dive uh, of about three and a half, four bucks over the, over the last month. Is that a game that they're trying to wind down their own stocks, or is that? I mean, it's what, a game what is to the arbitrage game? the price. So if they don't buy, the spot price goes down. They can buy cheaper, and we saw that happen with Traxxas, one of the largest uranium traders in the U.S. Uh, when the price started to drop off at twenty-eight and a half, twenty-nine bucks here, uh, about four or five weeks ago, the word on the street then was it was Traxxas trying to drive the price down so yeah. they could arbitrage to meet their contractor delivery. So, you know, everybody's trying to make money. <laughs> I think we saw this with copper in the 90s. Um, yeah, exactly. Copper is a much more transparent market. The problem with uranium is the most opaque market in the world. Even the people that trade and speculate, are, uh, you know, you, you talk to them and they go, well, we think, we're not sure, but we think this is why this is happening. 
Right. So you like uranium. You think it's going to pop at some point. You don't know when. I guess it's reliant on more announcements of more fleet being built. Yeah, more more nuclear power stations being built. Well, and, and there's one other factor I should mention, and that's uh, uh, long-term contracts from utilities, especially U.S. Based utilities are starting to end by 2020, 2021. They have to go back to market. And, and you know, the, the most important thing for a nuclear power reactor is security of supply. So these uh, utilities usually maintain somewhere one and a half, two, even three years of inventory ahead of themselves. You don't want to run out of uranium. Uh, uh, so they are at the end of the current long-term uh, contract market supply. And the thought is that they need to go back to the market uh, sometime in the next year or two. And they will go back because it's, it's positioned as a clean fuel. It's not a fossil fuel. It's, it's, it's clean, yep. despite the reputational uh, issues yeah. and perceptions, misconceptions in the marketplace. Yeah. Okay. And um, you think there will be some winners, but... There are also a lot of smaller exploration. You're an exploration guy. There's a lot of exploration companies in Africa and elsewhere, I guess, who have got reasonable market caps. People are hoping for great things. They're sitting on a great big pile of it, still under the ground. Are they really going to survive? I mean, we, you talked a second ago about some of the games played in terms of the, 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 the pricing and the, and the market with some yeah. of the trading, right. etc. Do those junior companies survive? They haven't got the money to sit around for two, three, four, five years, even at the uh, low GNA. They can't do this. So what happens to them? What happens to the shareholders who own that? Well, what happens to them is they uh, they continue to try to raise money at low valuations and they dilute themselves uh, by doing that. And at some point, they they sell the project. They do a joint venture. Uh, they roll back the stock to the bane of juniors, they uh, too much share dilution, they roll back the stock and leave their long-term committed shareholders uh, basically holding the bag. So, uh, you know, there's exceptions to all these rules. You know, I get Mickey's rules of thumb and, and there's always exceptions. So uh, I generally do not play in, your, in uranium exploration space. So uh, for me, it's the developers and the producers in the U.S. So, so all the things I told you about investing in mining companies uh, does not really apply to uranium space. Uh, my sweet spot in that space is uh, U.S. ISR developers and producers or startup companies. So I own three uranium companies right now. Uh, the U.S.'s biggest producer a, a former producer that has lots of ISR potential in the Western U.S. and Texas. And, and then I am a founding shareholder of a startup junior that has an advanced uh, ex, a, a development project in the Western U.S. So, right. So, again, uh, bypassing it, the exploration phase, though, for you. That's the important absolutely. bit there. For the average investor, a retail investor, or even, even some of the high net worths and family offices, what would you say is your, your, your five key things you think that they should do before they invest into this space? Well, number one, I'd suggest they go to some of these events. 
If you're in London, you go to Minds and Money London. If you're in Canada, you go to PDAC or the the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. If you're in the U.S., you go to Beaver Creek, Colorado, or New Orleans uh, every year. Uh, the Sprott Conference in Vancouver. Uh, you know, most, not all of them, but but uh, they're free. You just all you gotta do is get there and pay for a hotel bill. Uh, so so. So go to those conferences, get to know the management. Uh, find some newsletter writers and analysts who can give you ideas. Uh, you know, I think I do pretty good at what I do. Uh, learn, uh, do your own due diligence and research. Learn the business. Learn constantly. Try to learn how it works. Learn from your mistakes. Another of my sayings is a day without learning is a day wasted. I learn something every day of my life. And and, when, and the day I get up and I don't learn something on that day is probably a day I might as well just go up and, and, uh, <laughs> and die, you know, because you've got to keep educating yourself. That's four. Give me the magic That's fifth, the fifth one. one. Give me the uh, magic fifth one. Learn how stocks trade and the timing of how to get in, when to get in, try to get in early, look at early stage opportunities. Uh, if you have a seed stock opportunity, if you're a high net worth, listen to those people. You don't have to put money in, uh, but and try to associate with people who have been successful, have a track record of success in this business. Uh, you know, there's lots of things that are important, but uh, honest, forthright, and successful management. Uh, you know, guys like uh, a lot of newsletter writers, analysts will say that's the most important thing. Personally, I think the most important thing is the project. Uh, if the project isn't good, it doesn't matter how good the management is. Uh, but I'm a geologist, so I'm biased in that opinion. Mickey Fulp, everyone. You can get him on the mercenarygeologist.com. Do take a look at his newsletter as well. Uh, I'm also going to give a plug for my Twitter feed. We're very active on Twitter at mercenarygeo. Brilliant. Thank you, Mickey, again for your time. Have a wonderful weekend, uh, and we'll speak to you again real soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Matthew. Thank you very much for watching our video. We do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you want to see more insightful, in-depth, honest and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So thanks again for watching and we look forward to seeing you again soon.